You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned afterward for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hi, everybody. Welcome, everybody, online today, wherever you're joining us from. Thrilled to be with you. Welcome to Friendship Can Save the World, part two. Our scripture reading today is going to be from the end of Ruth 1 and the beginning of chapter two, here we go. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Chapter two, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvester. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. That's the reading of God's word today. All his people said, come on, amen. Yeah, so uh, it happened again last week. Online, that is. (laughs) When one person, perhaps many, unsuspecting, one in particular, one unsuspectingly, perhaps a little cluelessly, uh, she posted something about how great she thought her life was. And if you think you know where this is going next, you're probably right. Then a famous culture warrior with a super huge audience saw her TikTok, uh, reposted it with thoughts about how bad she was. Within a few hours, thousands of messages had flooded her inbox, name calling, shaming, and urging her to take her own life. Within a day of her initial post, the woman deleted her social media and went into hiding, tearful and fearful. Now, What do we call this? A number of things, I'm sure, but one word in particular our culture has for it is canceling. Canceling, right? Increasingly, we're tempted not just to uh, debate, even deeply disagree, but to delete and even to damn. And as the results of that aren't good, I think it contributes to something larger. New York Times, just about a year ago, uh, found this to be true. 30 years ago, only 3% of Americans said they had no close friends. 
Today, post-pandemic, it's 13% and rising. Now you hear about this kind of stuff happening and you're like, gee, I kind of wonder why. (laughs) Because many of us are scared, scared to say anything, scared to make friends, scared to reach out, scared to come to even church. I've heard, I get it. And then perhaps in the midst of all of that, the richest fruit for a relationally starving people to pluck and to taste would be the fruit of a single Bible word. That Bible word is the word Hesed. Hesed. His Hesed is a Hebrew word impossible to capture its full range in English. It means something like faithfulness beyond compare, something like covenant love, like unstoppable loyalty. Hesed is the word God uses to describe his love for you. Oh, and it's so rich. It's so lovely to the taste that one Hebrew writer, instead of just giving us a definition for it, he wrote a whole book about it, the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth asks, what does God's hesed, God's covenant love look like when human beings express that to each other, to one another? How does God's love help us not cancel, not quit, but cling, connect, commit, even covenant with one another despite differences. The book of Ruth prompts us to ask this. How does God's covenant love change our relationships? That's what we're looking at right now. How does God's covenant love help us change our relationships? We're gonna try to answer that by picking up three key moments from Ruth 1 and 2. God's covenant love, we're gonna see, helps us, number one, to overlook what's overlooked Number two, to overlook what's not overlooked. And finally, to realize we're actually not overlooked at all. Covenant love, let's look at number one, helps us to overlook what's overlooked. Let's go find that and do that by picking up where we left off in the narrative from last week. Last week, if you were here, and I hope you were, we were introduced to to two of the three protagonists in the story, Ruth and Naomi. Naomi is an older Jewish matriarch who left her home in Bethlehem in Israel during a famine, and she and her family relocated to the hostile neighboring nation of Moab. And while Naomi was there, her husband and two sons die, leaving her with two living Moabite daughters-in-law and zero prospects for survival. So Naomi hears rumors that now, years later, there's bread back on the shelves in Bethlehem. So she begins her long journey home. Along the way, she urges her daughters-in-law to return to Shub, that's the Hebrew word, to Shub back to her people to their gods, to their culture, back to Moabite way of worship, and one of them, Orpah, does it. She kisses her mother-in-law goodbye and goes back to Moab. But the other daughter-in-law, Ruth, remains. And in one of the most remarkable speeches in all the Bible, Ruth not only converts to faith in the one true God, but she also makes the powerful, multi-ethnic, multi-generational promise to remain with Naomi all the way to the end, no matter the cost. And now facing, facing here at the end of chapter one, this uncertain future, Naomi and Ruth stagger back into Bethlehem. For Naomi, uh, it's been more than 10 years gone and she's far worse for the wear. And so as they appear on the horizon, as they stumble their way back into town, Naomi's 
presence, along with the stranger by her side, sets the town abuzz. So there's tea to be spilled, as they say. These Bethlehemites have had no DMs, no text messages, no Insta updates or TikTok travel shots to let them know how Naomi's been, what Naomi has been through. Can you see the picture? This down-on-her-luck daughter of Bethlehem returns, not with husband, sons, and grandchildren, but with a single, strange Moabite. So the townspeople ask, who is this? Like, sorry, 80s fans, like, who could it be now? The old song goes, who could it be? Is this Naomi? Approximately one-third of you laugh. The other two-thirds are like, why did he even do that? Okay, <laughs> cut, cut that for the third service for sure, you know. Who is this? Is this Naomi? And the answer is, it is, and it isn't. It's her, but she's not the same. Naomi replies, verse 20, don't call me Naomi, she told him. Call me Mara. The Almighty's made my life very bitter. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, which means pleasant? Now, I love the message translation here. I think the message translation brings out something remarkable in these two verses. Message translation says this, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, it means bitter. The strong one has dealt me a bitter blow. I left here full of life and God, catch this, has brought me back with nothing but the clothes on my back. Hang on, wait a minute. Did Naomi just say she's got nothing in her life but the clothes on her back? Yes, she does say this. And when does she say that? When there is someone standing next to her, someone named Ruth, who just four verses and a few miles earlier had just sworn to be with her no matter what. So Ruth has left everything behind, including her last family member, to stay and support Naomi. And Naomi turns around and calls her nothing? Yes, which just goes to show that when you're in pain and when you're hurting, you can't even see the good things that are right there under your nose. Sometimes you can be so consumed by what you've lost that you can't see and recognize who you've gained. Sometimes we can be so broken by who has left us. We are blind to who has stayed with us. Sometimes the pain of our past makes us lash out at those who love us. Sometimes the bitterness of our backstory chokes out any pleasantness of the present. Naomi calls Ruth nothing in front of a whole town of people. And what does Ruth do? Oh, Ruth says nothing in return. Ruth just lets it go. Ruth, you see, overlooks what's been Overlooked. She overlooks being overlooked. Why? Ruth is displaying here what God's covenant love looks like. Not repaying evil with evil, but repaying evil with good. Ruth is living out Proverbs 19.11, which says, It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Ooh, but this isn't us many times, is it? No, I know it's not me. Oh my God, in an outrage cancel culture, we don't do this. I would've been like, hey, if I'm Ruth, I'd be like, hey, bitter lady. 
about that whole speech I just gave you. Your God, my God, your people, my people. Only death's going to separate us. What about the whole, the whole big promise I just made? You're literally leaning on my arm right now. And you say God's given you nothing? Oh, like Siri, you know, like launch my Uber app. You know, like, like, like Chad, Chad GPT, like what's the quickest road back to Moab, you know? See, but we never know what's on the line when we demonstrate hesed, covenant love. Ruth, after all, couldn't know that one day, because she did this, because she extended friendship when she was called nothing by the one she's saving, that that very act would sow something so powerful into the world in chapter one that it would bring someone into her life in chapter two, who would do even more for her in chapters three and four than she had done back in one. Ruth had no idea that because she stuck with Naomi, She'd meet a man named Boaz who would change her life and together they'd bring salvation into the world. See, Ruth had no idea what awaited her and we don't either. So let me summarize this point by telling you this. Your Naomi always comes before your Boaz. Your Naomi always comes before your Boaz. See, your relational bitterness comes before your relational blessing. Oh, we all want our Boaz, don't we? We all want our breakthrough, our redemption. We don't want a bitter place. We don't want a bitter friend. But if we will overlook the overlooking, we actually sow the seed of our own breakthrough, often sometimes just around the corner, maybe even with someone else. Now, I'm not talking about overlooking real abuse, real infidelity, real injustice or intimidation or threats. There are moments for sure that strong boundaries need to be drawn. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about what we all experience in life. That feeling of being overlooked or unappreciated by those we're laying our lives down for. But if we won't cancel, but we cling, we sow the seed of our own redemption, just like Ruth, just like Ruth. Overlooking is not not naming something. It's not not trying to make something right. Overlooking, being overlooked, is simply saying, I'm not allowing what you said to separate us. I may be in a Naomi moment right now, but my Boaz breakthrough is coming. Number one, God's covenant love, said, enables us to overlook what's overlooked when what's overlooked is us. us. Number two, but God's covenant love also enables us to, number two, overlook what's not overlooked. Overlook what's not overlooked. What do I mean? I mean, it's not just Ruth who overlooks something. It's also someone else who, interestingly enough, does the same. And his name, it says, was Boaz. Yes, as the story moves into chapter two. And before we even meet this man, Naomi and Ruth, Hatch a plan for survival. Ruth would head out into the grain fields of Bethlehem, an especially dangerous place for a female immigrant to go glean grain. Why did she go there? Well, because the God of the Bible 
cares about the poor. He didn't just leave it up to individuals alone, the Jewish tabernacle, the church alone to care for the poor, but he systematically cared for them through a national corporate law which forbade landowners from maximizing every single bit of money they could in order to profit themselves and their shareholders. God had said, business people, you must leave some of your profit literally on the floor for the poor. Leave grain for the hungry. You might make less, but trust me and I'll bless you. And one man did trust God with that. His name was Boaz and unknown to everyone, Ruth wandered into his field, Boaz, a relative of her family's, and she began to glean grain to eke out an existence. Verse four, Justin Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, the Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz, verse five, asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? Well, perhaps it was her age that made her stand out. Perhaps it was her beauty, perhaps. Perhaps it was uh, that, you know, no one's gleaned grain in Boaz's field for months. I don't know, perhaps she was just someone new. Regardless, Boaz asked his COO, his chief overseer officer, who is she? Now notice what and how the overseer answers. She repl- he replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. Notice she doesn't say, not her name is Ruth, or she's just with Naomi. Not just, she's a Moabite, but she's a Moabite from Moab. Like where else do Moabites come from? (laughs) Details in the literary genre of Hebrew narrative, they're super sparse. So when you get the same thing twice, it's not an accident. It's overkill. What's the overseer doing? Oh, you know, he's racially profiling Ruth. Daniel Block, basically the commentator considered one of the great experts on the book of Ruth, points out the same. He says, that the, he notes that the overseer focuses, he says, quote, on her national ethnic identity rather than on her as an individual. Now, why, why would the overseer do this? Well, perhaps he's afraid of him. You know, if you gave a mouse a cookie, like if you gave one Moabite permission to go glean grain in the fields, you know, they're just gonna attract others. Perhaps the overseer, the one responsible for the prophets, he, you know, he wanted to make the third quarter, you know, stat sheet look really good. The numbers look real good. So the foreigner taking the grain wouldn't help him out and perhaps suggesting him as an enemy to Boaz would, you know, make Boaz make her skedaddle into somebody else's grain field. Or perhaps, like so many people in so many places and so many countries over so many years, he just hated people like her. A poor immigrant from an enemy nation. And why shouldn't he hate her, right? I mean, come on. After all, remember what, remember what Moab had done to Israel one generation before? They had refused to come to Israel's aid at a crucial moment. And then the king of Moab had hired a prophet to try to curse the nation of Israel. And then Deuteronomy 23 had said, come on, no Moabite can ever worship in God's tabernacle with the Jewish people. I mean, why shouldn't he profile her? Why shouldn't he try to bait Boaz based on her background? Why shouldn't he? I'll tell you why he shouldn't. He shouldn't because that's not what covenant love looks like. 
That's not what hesed looks like. Oh, but the overseer forgot, didn't he? That he too was once an outsider. His people were once immigrants to their land. So he focuses on their differences and he minimizes their similarities. See, Ruth's ethnicity is not overlooked. Instead, it's overnamed. You know, Boaz, she's like the New Yorker from New York. The Californian from California. The Canadian from Canada. That, you know, the Mexican from Mexico. The Republican from the Republican Party. Like, whatever party would they be from? You know, you you just can't trust the people like them, Boaz. And what does Boaz say about all of that? Oh, Boaz, in his moment, like Ruth, in her moment, says nothing. Nothing. He doesn't take the bait. He overlooks what's not overlooked by his overseer. He refuses to let the overseer's words polarize the world into being people like us and people like them. Why do people do this? I mean, like, why do people turn into overseers instead of into Boaz's? Uh, Jonathan Raskin, he's an atheist. Not rascal, Raskin, yes, Raskin. Jonathan Raskin, atheist, secular researcher. He studies polarization, that is the the permanent separating of people and culture. And he wrote this, catch this, in the humanist, that means not Christian, humanist psychologist. This is his effort to describe why we do this. He's fascinating. He says, polarization is a reaction to humanity's inexorable dilemma, namely that we humans are small and insignificant. We are desperately fearful of and frantic to avoid the imminence of our own deaths. Like we're scared, so we do this. Polarized thinking serves as a defense agent against feelings of smallness and insignificance in the universe. When polarized, we inflate our own importance by trumpeting or imposing our own views while denigrating or persecuting those with alternative perspectives. This may keep existential anxiety at arm's length, but has tremendous psychological costs. Interesting. And this is, by the way, what overseers in much of our news media does to us, is it not? They try to polarize us, come on. Profile us, split, divide us for dollars and votes and power. I mean, do you think we are richer or poorer as a culture for this? Poorer. And Raskin noted this, it may make you feel better for a while when you watch the news, for example, and your heart gives in to profiling and polarizing, but it only makes you sick in the end. Now, because Raskin is a humanist and an atheist, he has no solution for this problem. Now, that's not reducing him. That's taking him at his word, by the way, because I've read the rest of his article and you haven't, so you're trusting me here. His article basically says, there's no answer for this, humanity. (laughs) There's no hope except try harder and do better. So that's the sermon today, folks. (laughs) Try harder and do better. Come on, come on, right? I mean, if that's all you hear today, I gotta try harder in my friendships. I gotta do better in my relationships. You will, you'll become either hopeless like Naomi because you know you've got nothing left to give or you'll become heartless like the overseer because you think you have everything to fear. So how? How can we live like neither? How can we live like Ruth's and overlook it when we feel overlooked or live like Boaz's who overlooked 
what's not overlooked. Oh, we can live like both. Here it is, number three. When we realize God's covenant love, his hesed, enables us to realize we are not overlooked at all. At all. What do I mean? I don't know if you caught it back during the reading, but in one of the most remarkable phrases, uh, this was used to describe how Ruth even ended up in the field of Boaz in the first place. After Ruth and Naomi agreed to send Ruth out, it says, verse 3, so she, in, she went out, entered a field, began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Wait a minute. How did she get there? Like, as it turned out, like, was this a coincidence? And then just a few verses later, verse 4, we're told, just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. Well, Ham, is this saying God does his best work through as it turned out, just thens, and see what had happened was his? <laughs> Morgan, are you... Are you saying that the fate of the world, that is the king who would come forth from this family line, that's King David, not someone else's line, who would have a child, who would have a child, who would have a child, who would have a great-grandchild, who would ultimately bring into the world Jesus of Nazareth, because that's the story, born in Bethlehem, mind you, Jesus, the Savior of the world, was born because as it turned out, Ruth just happened to go into a grain field. In the ancient Near East, Morgan, are you saying that the fate of the world and our salvation rested on what sure looks like a businessman's barley field coin toss? Well, it sure looked that way, but it only looked that way. This is telling you God is involved in your life and your friendships and in your future in ways you can't even see. This is what theologians call, yeah, the silent sovereignty of God. Best described in this phrase, that God's silence is not God's absence. God, after all, think of, he's silent in the book of Ruth. Unlike Moses, burning bush, Red Sea. Unlike Gideon, fire out of a rock, right? Elijah, fire from heaven. Daniel, mouths of lions shut. Ruth, nothing. No miracle, no healing. Not even like a rookie angel out to get his wings with a telegram, you know? <laughs> Does that mean God was absent? Many years ago, many years ago, in this church, after this church was planted, and man with another separate ministry, he joined this church. He and the original founding senior pastor began to argue and quarrel over who should lead many years ago. Finally, the founding pastor left, leaving the second pastor in charge. Unfortunately for him, he made a series of uh, unfortunate uh, choices. You know, bad, sinful decisions ended up being fired and divorced. Not good. A third and much older pastor began to lead, finding only he needed also to resign and to leave. And into all of that mess waited a small group of people here with some names that you might know, like John Lloyd, Brett Milliken, many also of you today, Barnabas Willis. Ultimately, they thought what it might be a good idea to ask Carrie and me to come back to this church and help lead in the middle of all of that. And from there, Mosaic has grown now to what it is now, planning a number of new works and churches across the country. New one in Fort Worth last week. Yeah, seeing countless people come to faith in Jesus and find spiritual family and community and be a blessing, I hope, to this city. Now, I'd like to think 
that I played at least some small part in all that. Along with your part, along with a whole lot of other people's amazing parts, all of those sacrifices have led us to here, but it all started with a power struggle and some sins and then some money issues that ended up with my being here, and I hope you or some level being blessed today. Morgan, are you saying that the power struggles and the sin issues and the money problems were for me and my seat today? Mosaic. Well, as it turned out, <laughs> yes. It just so happened that two people who shouldn't have been fighting were, but God was working the whole time, not just despite the dark and the pain, but through the faithfulness, hear me, of some Ruths and Naomi's and Boaz's in this church to bring about, I think, a congregation that has been a blessing and a good in the world. See, God's hesed, God's covenant love worked through famine in Ruth, through famine in this church, and is working through whatever famine is happening in your life right now. It happened through deaths in Naomi's life and even deaths in this church, sure. But it also worked because three small, insignificant people in history decided that showing covenant love to one another was better than walking away. Three townspeople in a Judean village decided they wouldn't let either personal offense or race baiting to cause their hearts to fail and their feet to walk away from multi-ethnic, multi-generational community. Were Ruth, Boaz, Naomi, were they overlooked by God? No, they weren't. Let me tell you, neither are you. And the best way of all you can know that is because of this. One day, one day, many years later, through the line of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz came another seemingly even more insignificant person, also born in the same town of Bethlehem. His name was Jesus. And it was said of him, he was so unremarkable in his appearance, so insignificant. There was nothing even attractive about the way he looked. He grew up poor, the son of an insignificant carpenter. And he led a, a following founded by insignificant fishermen. And it just so happened that one of his disciples that he chose betrayed him. The rest scattered and Jesus was arrested. We know this, put on trial. And when he was insulted, like Ruth, what did he say? Like a lamb before his shearers. He was silent. He didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threat. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And when Jesus died, God's silence sure looked like his absence. When Jesus cried out, like Naomi, my God, why have you forsaken me? He got silence. But was God absent? No, God was working to bring about a salvation so incredible. One day so complete, it will make all the evil in the world turn backward and you and me in the world better for having even gone through it. He was working through the evil to save the world. And when you know this, and when you look at the life of Jesus, hear me, living for you, dying for you, being resurrected for you, and know that God does his best work through the smallest people, through what seem like the most insignificant moments you can drop all the insecurity about, am I seen? Because the answer is, yes. Are you overlooked today? And the answer is, not by God. Not by God. You can drop all the insecurity in the soul about, am I known? The answer is, yeah. Yeah, you are. Even if you're overlooked and unseen by others, you're never overlooked 
by an almighty, loving, omnipotent God. See, we don't have to cancel when we know this. We, don't to, we can cling. We can commit. We can covenant to go all the way to the end together. Hesed is how God changes and shapes our relationships. Hope you can say amen. Let me take a moment and pray for you. Lord, I thank you for this, for these truths you send us like a beacon through history. Lord, calling us to a better way of life, a better way of living, a better way of posturing ourselves in the world. Help us to see and know we're never overlooked. Jesus, you weren't. These small people in this small town sure weren't. You did your best work through such as these. And you're doing a good work now, I believe, through such as us. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.